Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case, Slumber Party Massacre. Monday, May 1st, 2023, may have been a normal run-of-the-mill day for many of us, but not for Henrietta, a quaint country town with less than 6,000 residents. The close-knit community of Henrietta sits just 60 miles from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Even to those in Oklahoma, the town is known mostly for its notable natives, rodeo legends Jim Shoulders and Terry Don West, football Hall of Famer Troy Aikman, former Major League Baseball player Mark Rial, and Oklahoma Supreme Court Justice Stephen W. Taylor. However, the gruesome discovery that afternoon at around 3 o'clock p.m. sent shockwaves through the town's foundations, overshadowing its proud history. The world was tuned in and looking at Henrietta, the spotlight on it but in the most dreadful way. On the town's fringes sits a small house surrounded by over 100 acres known as the caretaker's quarters, rented at the time by Jesse Lee McFadden and his wife, Holly Tanette L. McFadden. The family hosted a slumber party on Saturday, May 29, 2023, with two of their daughters, Tiffany's friends, Brittany Brewer, 15, and her best friend, Ivy Webster, 14. Sunday morning, Ashley Webster received a message from her daughter saying that she was accompanying Tiffany's family to McAllister to work on Jesse McFadden's ranch. Having known the family for a while and having sleepovers many times before, immediate danger wasn't a thought that even crossed the Brewer and Webster family's minds. So that evening, when they received a call from Jesse McFadden around 5 o'clock p.m. notifying them that they were still in McAllister, nothing seemed amiss. However, as the events unfolded, the atmosphere took an eerie turn when the girls never showed up at home and as the hours ticked by, neither family could reach their daughters or Tiffany's parents, Holly, or stepdad, Jesse. They knew something wasn't right. So first thing in the morning on May 1st, 2023, the Brewer and Webster families, consumed by worry and fear, filed missing persons reports. Amber alerts were swiftly issued that same morning and so began a heart-wrenching journey into uncertainty and dread for these two families. Local teens Brittany Brewer, 15, and Ivy Webster, 14, had vanished. Neither family had heard their daughter's voices since Saturday. Their disappearance, alarming as it was, would be the catalyst for an even more horrifying revelation to come. On Monday, May 1st, 2023, the Okmulgee Sheriff's Department, armed with a failure-to-appear bench warrant for a jury trial early that morning that Jesse McFadden had failed to show for, and a search warrant rapidly issued based on accumulated evidence, which included a chilling revelation as the families discovered for the first time McFadden's dark past. 
He was a convicted rapist and a registered sex offender. He wasn't listed on the Oklahoma State Sex Offender Registry either, something someone tried to report to the Henrietta Police Department three months prior in February. They entered the gate to the home and the property hopeful, but the extensive search for the girls culminated in a chilling tableau, a property dotted with seven lifeless bodies in what appeared to be a mass killing and subsequent suicide. This grim discovery not only stunned the families of the missing girls, but also cast a pall of dread over the entire town of Henrietta. In the harrowing span between Saturday, April 29, 2023, the night of the slumber party, and Monday, May 1, 2023, Jesse Lee McFadden orchestrated a monstrous act of violence, wielding a 9mm handgun purchased by Holly in September of 2022. McFadden killed his wife Holly, her three children, and Tiffany's friends. Then a chilling conclusion to the rampage, McFadden used the same 9mm handgun to end his own life. Holly, 35, with three gunshot wounds to the head and her two children, Michael, 15, and Tiffany, 13, both with two gunshot wounds to their heads, were discovered together outside the McFadden home, lying near McFadden, who sustained one self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Some 500 yards away, the lifeless bodies of Holly's oldest child and daughter, Riley, 17, along with Tiffany's friends, Brittany, 15, and Ivy, 14, were found, each separated from the others by approximately 150 yards, having sustained a gunshot wound to the head each. With heavy hearts, law enforcement were tasked with delivering the agonizing news to the Brewer and Webster families, who had been clinging to the hope that their daughters were safe. To any parent, the thought of losing a child is the ultimate tragedy. Paula Stevens, founder of Crazy Good Grief, says, Losing a child is the loneliest, most desolate journey a person can take, and the only people who can come close to appreciating it are those who share the experience. This wouldn't be the end of the journey for the victims' families, the community, or the state. In total, McFadden left behind six victims, but many grieving families. Holly Tanet McFadden was 35 years old. She had her older two children with Cody Allen and then later married Joe Guess, Tiffany's father, for 13 years. Despite the divorce, he was adopting the other children. Her family remembers her as a dedicated mother who made all her decisions centered around her children. Described as an overprotective parent, she was also one of the most supportive. Riley Elizabeth Allen, 17, and Michael James Mayo were born to Cody Allen and Holly Tanette Mayo, and Michael James Mayo were born to Cody Allen and Holly Tanette Mayo. Their relationship was toxic and they parted ways with Cody being cut out of their lives. Riley was nearing adulthood. She was a good friend, daughter, and student. Everyone said she was an artist with great talent. Michael, who was 15, attended Hendrienna Middle School, where he ran track and cross country, when he wanted to play football, Holly, his mom, got the family matching t-shirts and sweatshirts to support them. Riley and Michael's father, Cody, shared his devastation and said he is still sorting through his feelings. He says he thinks the only way that any of us from the family are going to get through it and the family of the other girls is to fight for justice, not just for them, but to make sure this doesn't happen again. Tiffany Guess, who was no stranger to Henrietta Middle School, where she had made many friends and ran track and cross country. She was a member of the school choir and had just tried out to be a cheerleader. Her grandmother, Holly's mom, said she was the sweetest, most loving girl you'd ever met. We called her Tiffasaurus because when she'd get mad at you, she'd growl. 
Tiffany is being buried near her father, but all the family has agreed to have ashes of each child in each urn and Tiffany's coffin to be together in a sense, according to Cody, Riley, and Michael's biological father. Brittany Cheyenne Brewer was born April 22, 2008 to Nathan Brewer and Melena Gray in Garland, Texas. She is one of seven children and three girls. She had four brothers, Isaiah, Alex, Jacob, and Landon, and two sisters, Dixie and Haley. With the blended family, she had a large family and even more love. She was known as an outgoing person and was selected to be Miss Henrietta coming up in July for the Miss National Miss Pageant in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She was a student at Henrietta Middle School where she was a member of the choir. She was very active in her church, Schultzer Baptist Church and the Nazarene Youth Group. She was laid to rest on Wednesday, May 10th, 2023. Ivy Webster was born on April 23rd, 2009 Ivy Webster was born on April 23, 2009 to Ashley and Justin Webster. She is described as a genuine person who loved people, animals, and of course her friends and family. She was a student at Henrietta Middle School. She played softball and her mom says she was a good person. Her friends speak of how kind she was and how she never failed to make them laugh. Justin, her father, said, I'm angry with the system. This is a man that had priors. He was a sex offender and he was let loose on a sentence that he should have been in there longer. I know he planned it. He planned the whole thing. He was angry at the world and he didn't care who he hurt. I found out there was other girls that he wanted to have come to. It's really sad to me to see kids who who haven't even made it to adulthood and haven't experienced anything but their childhood to leave the world so soon. And I think it's even more sad that none of these kids did anything to anybody to deserve this. So this wasn't like an act of revenge or, you know, anything of that nature. So with all these different things that are coming out, even even with evidence that's come out, the families have not been on the same page. Um, and one family would hear, when, when they're all sitting down with the detectives, one family gathered things that the detective was saying one way and the other family another way. So some of the things that are coming out right now without having the official report out, um, I think can be inaccurate. But I try to give myself the opportunity to have the perspective of whoever it is that I'm speaking about, what I think their perspective would be. And for Holly, absolutely she's not gonna wanna do anything that endangers her children, I would think, if she's a good mom like everybody says she is. And even her, you know, the first gentleman that she was with, when he was speaking, he was pushed out of the older two kids' lives. And as you know, Tiffany Guess's dad was actually in the process of adopting the older two kids which means he was on board. He also knew about him. Neither one of them had anything bad to say about Holly as a mom. And I think that speaks a lot to understanding who she was and how she would be with her kids. One thing that I think is challenging is if he was lying to her. So now on one hand, I heard Holly's mom say Holly didn't know anything. And then on the other hand, she did an interview and said she found out a few months ago and that he lied to her and he was manipulating her. 
personally, if it were me at that point, a few months ago, I would have done my own research. I don't care who came and talked to me. I would have done my own digging. I would have looked up on the public records for Oklahoma. I would have looked up his name. I would have looked up his history. And, you know, she may not have known that that stuff was out there, but I definitely would have done digging to get my own story and not just, I would trust, but verify. What's sad is that these answers are really just going to be left to speculation regardless, because she isn't here to, to ask and he isn't here to ask. And I would be inclined to believe the statement that was made by Tiffany's dad, because Tiffany's dad said that they had an arrangement or an agreement that whoever came into the lives of the kids that was going to be around the kids in like a living situation, like we're talking about, that they would do a background check. And so when he asked her if she had done a background check, she said yes. So she lied. And the reason that I'm inclined to believe him is because he hasn't said anything negative about her. He's not bashing her, anything anything of that nature. He's saying what a good mom she is. I'm inclined to believe that she did lie to him and why. I would like to believe that if she lied to him, was it an innocent, like, first of all, she shouldn't have lied to him. But was it more of a, you know, hey, did you do a background check? And she's thinking like, this is a good person. Like I've known him for however much time. I haven't heard anything bad about him. Nothing's popped up. And so did she, was it a, a matter of her dismissing it or was it actually that she knew something at that point and didn't know how to handle it, whatever the case may be. Her family said that he actually paid for somebody to come and pretend to be the girl that he was going to court over to make everything seem like some big misunderstanding. Yeah, there's a lot of red flags there that she should have picked up as a mom. And I'm not, I'm not judging her. Right. She, she made her decisions. She she did the things that she did. But I'm saying for other parents that are out there when you're a single parent, and, and Alicia, from your perspective, if your mom was single and she was bringing a person into your life, what would you expect for your mom to do to protect you? She knew that he was in jail for 20 years, right? She had just found out a few months ago. Well, definitely at that point to do a background check. Yeah. Yeah, definitely for me. And I think there's an element there where you're in love with somebody. And I'm definitely not saying to put somebody over your children, but I think that there's an element of like, you can't just walk out of the house. Like it's not a matter of, there's more dynamics involved in that. And I think she wanted to believe him. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe she was complicit in it all. We honestly don't know that. So Riley, Elizabeth Allen and Michael James Mayo, they had different dads? No, they had the same dad. Um, how come they have different last names? I have no idea. <laughs> I would guess, so since Michael's younger, I would guess that they were separated at that point. Mm. Um, the dad told a very honest story about how he was doing some no good things, and he's honestly just learning about his kids now. Oh. Um, he's pretty He's pretty upset. He was very emotional, and he said, you know, to any parents out there who were in the situation that I was in, like, fight harder for your kids. He said that they had gotten in a bad fight. She left with the kids. And he was never able to find his kids after that. But he also said that he wasn't in a good place in his life and felt like almost like his kids were better off without him at that point in time. Yeah, that's sad. It is sad. And then Michael, it looks like he uh, ran cross country. Yeah, um, he ran cross country. Everybody, everybody said that they were great kids. And even the Webster family, they also had a son who, well, one of the families, had a son who would also spend the night there at the house occasionally 
So um, they had all kind of made friends with one another. Tiffany Guest is the youngest daughter of Holly, and she's also the only daughter of Joe Guest, who is who Holly was married to last prior to meeting McFadden. And he is also the one who wanted to adopt the other kids. So he said that she was actually pregnant with Michael whenever they met. So mm. Michael's seen him as his dad, and he's always felt like they're his kids. Brittany, I see that she's, um, she's one of seven. Um, that's a pretty big family. I'm glad she didn't bring any of her sisters with her. Absolutely. From my knowledge, she's got two sisters, and she's in a blended family. So some of the kids live with her mom, her oh, biological yeah. mom, and then some of the kids there with her dad. She was living with her dad and his wife. So they had a big family. And he actually, her dad was a firefighter, and he actually made a comment about parents looking at I ain't going to lie, I disagreed with his comment, but he said parents don't have time to be looking into to everybody. Yeah, you're not, you're not going to have knowledge of everybody that your kid's around. And maybe he didn't mean it in that way, but if my child's going to spend the night at your house, I'm going to know about you. Yeah. And maybe there's, um, and I'm probably guilty of this as well, like just growing up, of letting, allowing my kids to stay at their friend's house because their friends are cool and you're thinking their parents are cool. And sometimes you kind of know their parents, but don't know their parents, you know? Plus like, you trust your kids. Yeah, you do. You do trust your kids. And you never think something this drastic is ever going to happen to them. And so I probably haven't done due diligence in allowing my children to go and stay at other people's house. But this really wakes me up to the threat and to the risks of that. That has nothing to do with your kids, you know? That yeah. has zero to do with your kids. Yeah. Jesse Lee McFadden was a despicable human. At the age of 39, he had spent nearly half his existence within the cold, unyielding walls of the penitentiary. A figure who cast a long, dark shadow in the annals of crime, McFadden had been branded by many as a master manipulator, a con man with grand larceny notches on his criminal belt. However, the most heinous chapter of McFadden's tell is far more sinister. Among the sea of registered sex offenders, he stands out with a chilling charge, a first-degree rape conviction. His victim, a terrified 16-year-old girl who was not just subjected to an assault, she faced her mortality as McFadden held a knife to her throat a chilling encounter that has undoubtedly left indelible scars on her psyche. In a world that cries for justice, McFadden was sentenced to 20 years for this monstrous act, but in 2020, after serving just a hair under 17 years, the prison gates opened for him prematurely. The alarm bells don't stop ringing there. McFadden had incurred additional criminal charges while incarcerated, and guess what for? Yes, another sex crime with a minor. He hadn't even tasted freedom yet and was due back to court for a jury trial. Related to another sex crime birthed in the dark confines of his incarceration where he had acquired an illegal cell phone and began an illicit and inappropriate relationship. His release, a jarring note in the melody of justice, has left many unsettled asking questions. The complex web of Oklahoma's legal system, when viewed through the scratched and distorted lenses of this case, is mired in errors and misjudgments. This state, known for its strict stance on severe offenses, stipulates that a convict must serve at least 85% of their original sentence. However, in the curious case of Jesse Lee McFadden, he had served only 84%. 
A mere 1% difference, but a significant 1% that set a man with a notorious record back on the streets and not for good behavior. This deviation becomes even more troubling when we shed light on an additional sexual offense McFadden committed before his early release. It raises profound questions and concerns about the very fabric of our justice system designed to protect society from such repetitive predatory behavior. McFadden's cellmate, a man who shared the grim confines of the prison with him, told tales of disturbing conversations, every one of them awkwardly and unnervingly obsessed on sex. These eerie interactions paint a chilling portrait of a man whose predilections remain undeterred by the punitive measures of incarceration. And some anonymous do-gooder had enough sense to raise an alarm. Someone had alerted the Henrietta Police Department when McFadden appeared in town, conspicuously absent from the sex offender registry. Yet, this crucial piece of information fell off deaf ears by the Henrietta Police Department, and so it went unaddressed and ignored. This allowed McFadden, who had been pushing his jury trial since he had been released from prison, not once or twice, but a total of more than eight times, to orchestrate what appears to be a diabolical plot to sexually assault and murder the most amount of victims in one weekend, before taking his own life and avoiding the possibility of another jail bid. You see, McFadden was due to court on Monday, May 1st. He had run out of excuses and knew that the evidence against him was substantial. He had attempted to threaten and coerce his victim to drop charges and came close to convincing her to do so, but in the end, she was resolute and steadfast, and McFadden had reached the end of his road. McFadden's plan was to invite all of his stepdaughter's friends, as many as he could convince, to come over to the home for a sleepover. It is unknown if it was his stepdaughters who texted their friends or the manipulative and conniving McFadden who sent the text, but Ivy and Brittany were excited to hang out with their friends at the McFadden residence. They'd had sleepovers before, and so this raised no alarms. And also, McFadden wasn't on the sex registry, and no one suspected that he was a sex offender. One friend, Annika, had been unable to attend the sleepover. On Saturday, she received a text asking if she wanted to go to the mall with the girls. It is very unlikely that the text came from any of the children and was most likely sent by McFadden himself, attempting to bait and trap yet another victim. If she had said yes, Annika would have been the seventh victim of McFadden's. Instead, she declined and said she might be able to go next weekend instead. None of the victims were heard from on Saturday from the time they arrived at the McFadden's residence. On Saturday night, McFadden texted the girl for the case that he was defending himself against. The message read, I did exactly what I promised I would do when I got out. I got a marketing job making great money and was being advanced. Been there two years now and made a great life like I promised I would do with you. Now it's all gone. I told you I wouldn't go back. This is all on you for continuing this. On Sunday, Ivy and Brittany's parents had not heard from their daughters. McFadden called them to buy time, saying they were all out in McAllister at his ranch. The parents bought the story, but when they didn't arrive home Sunday night and no one could reach McFadden or Holly, they became worried. It is believed that sometime between Sunday morning and Monday morning, McFadden sexually assaulted at least one of the young girls and executed everyone in the home, with six victims in total before he took his own life. On Monday morning, when the girls had not yet returned home, an Amber Alert was issued for the two missing girls. McFadden had missed his court date and a bench warrant had been issued. With the bench warrant and the Amber Alert, the police quickly obtained a search warrant for the McFadden property. A faithful press conference was held on the 3rd of May after the police had recovered and identified all the bodies. Okmulgee Police Chief Joe Prentice stood before the crowd, an embodiment of law and order, with a sombering assessment of the case. I follow the evidence, all right, and the evidence is that Jesse McFadden murdered six people and then killed himself. 
and I don't have any evidence to indicate what the actual motive was. And I'm going to be honest with you folks. Normal people that understand care, love, compassion wouldn't understand if I could come up with it anyway. A bold and unequivocal statement that sends shivers down the spine of every listener. However, every crime, especially one as gruesome as this, is driven by a motive, a driving force that propels a person to cross the line of humanity. This is where the case takes a perplexing turn. Prentice, the stalwart cop, admitted with a touch of frustration, as for the motive behind this chilling act, I'm in the dark. I don't have any evidence to indicate what drove McFadden to commit these horrendous crimes. What drives a man to such extremes? Let's talk about what drives a man to such extremes. Where did he go to school at? Like, where did he grow up? What was his deal? I honestly don't know that. From from what I could tell, his family spent most of their most of their time in Oklahoma. And yeah. believe it or not, his brother has a very similar record to McFadden's. He also received a twenty year prison sentence, and he also was released early. And one of the things that his first survivor said, her name's Crystal Strong, was that um, his brother had hit somebody in the back of the head with an axe and put her in a dog kennel. So then when I hear that the mom is so surprised that this happened, the mom of, of McFadden and his brother Cody, I'm thinking, so obviously your children are both very violent. How are you surprised? Yeah. And, and what did they go through to get to that point in their lives for them to be this way? Absolutely. Because it's not normal for two brothers to be this deviant and di- this this twisted and, and distorted. Yeah. And their records are, are, are lengthy. They're not, you know, his brother's actually more so than his, but both violent. Is the brother older or younger? I believe he's younger. His younger brother. I wonder if there's some type of sexual trauma in their lives that caused them to be Raping somebody is a is a really personal. It like, is. That's a. I actually equate it to being worse than so. So when I think about murder, I kind of, I kind of grade them based on on the interaction that you have to have with somebody as to how bad it is. Yeah. And so you know, if you shoot somebody with a gun, you don't have to be close to them. You may not even get any blood on you if you're far enough away. It's not a very close and upfront murder. Yeah, but now if you're, if you're stabbing somebody, that is very personal. You're going to yeah. get their blood on you. It's just you've got to be close to them. You're touching them. And so in my mind, rape is is the equivalent of just that, you yeah. know. And, and a matter of fact, even more personal than yeah, just for sure. touching. So, And then what causes you to put somebody in a cage? I've never oh put no. anyone in a cage. Well, we know that somebody put their their significant other in a suitcase, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Maybe a case for tomorrow. Joe did that? No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I thought she was making a sarcastic joke. No. That's a real no, case. That's a real case. Oh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Were they posted on TikTok? Yeah. So in total, there were six victims. Holly McFadden, Riley Allen, Michael Mayo, Tiffany Guest, Brittany Brewer, and Ivy Webster. There was only one offender, and that was Jesse McFadden. As for evidence, 
Though unknown at this time, police have confirmed that his gunshot wound was self-inflicted. And as for the motive, no motive has been released at this time, but speculation is that it was due to his most recent case and impending prison sentence that would occur. And for the sentence, unfortunately, this wasn't an option for McFadden because he took his own life. He did try to commit suicide the first time that he was being that he got arrested too. It's not uncommon for him to try to attempt suicide. So his first victim actually said that when she saw on the news that he was that the two girls were missing and he was listed as the person of interest, she said she was sick, basically sick to her stomach and Though she obviously wanted to be hopeful, she's also a, a mother now, she has children, um, she obviously was hopeful that they would be found just fine, but based on her experience, when he was done raping her and knowing that the police were coming after him, they found him, picked him up down by some water, and he had slit his wrists. So when she saw them on the news, in her mind, she's thinking this is only going to end in him taking his life. Right. Too bad he couldn't have done it before he took anybody else's life. Right. It is true. Yeah, at least he always agrees with me, <laughs> especially on the violent stuff. <laughs> My theory, based on all of the things that I've seen in his records and, and whatnot, and then hearing about the scene, which something that I find very odd is that the investigators are being so... The only reason for you to be so quiet about your investigation is if you are actively pursuing someone or someone's so the fact that they're being so secretive about everything is is honestly disturbing especially knowing how much they messed up but my theory is this my theory is that he met holly holly looks young he decided to marry her bonus holly had kids i don't think my guess is that holly didn't initially know i would like to think that she wouldn't have married him if she knew that but i don't know that so she marries him and he's going through this case because it continued to be pushed and pushed and pushed, which I think he was hoping either it would continue to be pushed or that the girl would just pull out. And he actually tried to convince her at one point she did pull out and then reengaged again. So I think after he marries her, he's thinking everything's going good. He's getting his life straightened out. Maybe he can get that, that case, you know, gotten rid of. And then he realizes that he can't. So now he starts getting nervous and he's thinking, I've got to, you know, I'm going to have to tell Holly something. How can I explain this in a way where I can still maintain my life on the outside? The other thing is that I wonder is if him getting married was not about him caring about her, but about him looking good in case he did go to trial. Just a theory. But... I think that when he realized that he couldn't get out of things, that he decided to tell Holly. And I think when he told Holly, Holly was upset. I think that um, he very well may have, whoever this girl is, paid this girl to come tell Holly that it was all a big misunderstanding or whatever. And then this recent case, I don't know how you would have explained two things away. So I'm a little bit confused on that. That just doesn't play out very well to me like i can see one mistake but like two mistakes especially that are very similar and you were in jail for as long as you were to me those are those are like that ain't just a red flag that's a burning flag so very troublesome so i think that at the point he realizes that this is it 
his his trial isn't being pushed anymore. He was going to a jury trial, by the way, that he decided he needed to take some type of action. And so based on what's come out so far, I believe that on Saturday night, it was not Holly's children who messaged their friends. I think it was him. Based on what was found in the home, I believe that he bound them and that when the friends showed up, Holly and her children were already bound. What was found in the home? There was some drug paraphernalia found in the home. I think that there's a likelihood that he could have drugged any one of them. I don't know that for sure. And in order for him to have killed that many people, I believe that he walked them out one by one and killed them. And if bodies were moved, I believe that the only reason he moved bodies were merely for the fact that for the owner of the property who had already caught him within a couple days of the murders, well, we don't really know the time frame, but within a couple days of when everything came out, had saw him trying to park his truck in a different area that wasn't in the area that they're renting. And he asked him why, and he said, oh, I'm trying to hide it from a family member. So I think that he walked them out one by one. And if the bodies were moved, the only reason for moving the bodies had to do with concealment until he was done with doing what he was doing. And I think that he planned on going out with a bang. I wonder if he had assaulted any of the kids prior to this. I'm inclined to think not. I would think that they would have told their dad. And I also think that their friends would have said something to their parents. I don't think that that would have went on for the amount of time that they had known them and had been going to their house. But there's also some questions that I have. So I want to talk through the crime scene. So for starters, so we know that they were all outside, right? But they were also outside of the home where they lived on the land of the home where they lived. Naturally speaking, regardless of the fact that you think that this person shot themselves and that your perpetrator is dead, you always have to assume that there could be somebody else out there, that there's another perpetrator as well. So you don't know what all has occurred, right? So you should be doing your investigation the exact same way every single time. I don't even know that they went in the house. And the reason that I say that is because they released the scene. So so if you have a family member who dies in a home and the police are, are processing the crime scene, you will not be allowed to go back in that home until they're done because it's considered an active crime scene and they don't want evidence tampered with or evidence tainted. So they don't want to mess up the chain of custody. All of those things that are all very important, not just to to using in a, in a trial and convicting somebody, but also in figuring out what actually occurred. So the reason I think they didn't go into the house is because one of the families, which was Ivy Webster's family, hired an attorney. They were very upset that they were not getting answers from the detectives. And they decided to go in the house. Very curious about what happened. They weren't getting any answers. They wanted to see if they could piece together anything because they're hurting. They were wanting closure. They invited a news team with them so that if anything was found, there was somebody there to log it, to observe it. So they get into the home. First thing they notice it's strange is that there is a bed in the living room. That's strange to them. And now this was a small house, so I don't know if this was a sleeping arrangement, but they found a bed in the living room. In the bedroom, they found drug paraphernalia, which included a syringe that had black fluid in it, could very well have been heroin. They found multiple sex toys, lubricant. They found a human dog collar. They found other cell phones to include their daughter's cell phone. They found laptops. They also found behind 
one of, and I'm guessing that this was McFadden's bedroom, but I'm not sure. They found some anchors in the wall that still had chains attached to them. And then in the kitchen, they found an anchor on the kitchen counter that looked new. They also ended up finding a receipt and it had chains attached to it. So based on that, you know, I, the police did a horrible, well, the detectives did a horrible job at processing that crime scene and very well, a lot of what was touched by different people could, could have, that could be an issue. But the OSBI came in, which is basically like the state's investigative unit, which they had at one point been called to assist, which is normal. You can even get the FBI to assist. So they got them to assist. They're in a small town. I'm pretty sure that they're not used to dealing with anything like that. Plus there's multiple bodies. It's a larger crime scene and it's outside. So they asked for assistance. But then at the point that this happened, when Ivy Webster's family went into the house and found all of these things, they, of course, were extremely upset. We're wondering if, you know, once they found out that their daughter was sexually assaulted, did he put that on the web? Was, was something filmed? Were there people that were coming onto the property other than him? Maybe. Were there people that he victimized and did something with? Maybe. And those are the things that they need to figure out. Yeah, they also found a, uh, didn't they find a receipt for like a storage? They did. And I don't know if, again, they're not saying anything, which is super frustrating for me and I'm not the family. So I know as a family member, I would be, I would be just going crazy if they weren't giving me any information at all. So one of the other things that's very important that they found was they found a list that had names and birth dates on it. Of who? I don't know. So, and I don't know how, how long the list was, but it, it leaves some speculation so weird yeah Given further evidence unearthed by the family within the McFadden residence, this case might hold deeper intricacies than what initially meets the eye. We are compelled to question, did Oklahoma prematurely release McFadden from incarceration? And the answer is yes. He was sentenced to 20 years, which is 7,300 days. He was released at 16.8 years, and that's 6,132 days. This means that he served 84% and not 85% of the required minimum to getting out. And then he was released even though there was an active case pending. And guess what he would have been released for? Good behavior. He stole a cell phone or had a cell phone brought in, traded something for a cell phone, whatever it was that he did. He wasn't supposed to have a cell phone. And then he also committed a crime with that cell phone and he was released. As we continue to navigate the complex landscape of criminal justice, it's clear that certain protocols could use an overhaul. Here are a few propositions. The parole board should be updated to include automatic alerts for any case that involves A, a victim, notification, or B, a convict who is currently implicated in an active case. These flags should be cleared on an electronic device before the parole board, any parole board, can take action. The scheduling of jury trials involving known violent offenders should not be deferred for years, regardless of the circumstances. And I'll give you a few examples. I'm going to be out of town during that week. Let's defer the trial. 
I'm sick. My recovery is expected to be 12 weeks. Let's move the trial. And the list goes on. There's much more than that. Somebody broke their foot or something. Given that trial dates are determined well in advance, it's crucial to have a replacement ready to step in for the prosecution or the defense if necessary. In a world that's adapted to remote operations post-COVID, even Zoom could be utilized if needed. In the context of marriage, a flagging system should be incorporated into the application process for a marriage license. If one of the individuals is a registered sex offender, especially when children are involved, an alert should be raised. It should be mandatory to disclose this information to the other party, and in such cases, the issuance of the marriage license should be automatically denied. These potential changes could create a more robust system, better equipped to protect those at risk and prevent future tragedies. In a perplexing oversight, McFadden's name was notably absent from the Oklahoma Sex Offender Registry. This is a glaring failure by the state, one that has resulted in unimaginable pain for four families, an outcome that is unequivocally unacceptable. His first known survivor, Crystal Strong, endured the terror of being bound and threatened with a knife. The second survivor, Caitlin Babb, was manipulated and subsequently threatened. Despite these horrifying experiences, it seems as though the relevant authorities failed to take decisive action. Such oversights must not go unaddressed. There is a dire need for accountability in the system in order to prevent such devastating consequences from repeating in the future. In-depth research suggests that recidivists are responsible for a disproportionate volume of crime, with post-prison arrest rates soaring 30 to 40 times higher than that of the general populace. Tragically, these crimes tend to escalate over time, often culminating in acts such as murder. In a study by Abel and his team, paraphiliacs, those diagnosed with a psychosexual disorder, were interviewed under conditions of assured confidentiality. The startling revelation was that a mere 3.3% of their self-confessed hands-on sex offenses such as rape and child molestation resulted in an arrest. That is an extremely low number. This case remains in progress. We urge anyone possessing pertinent information to contact the OSBI tip line at 1-800-522-8017 or send an email to tips at osbi.ok.gov. Confidentiality is guaranteed for those providing information. So what's to come? So the investigation currently is ongoing. They have not released anything official. And I can tell you that from information that I pulled off of the Oklahoma Records Network, they have since removed a lot of documents where you can no longer get to them, which is strange behavior in my point of view. Everyone's awaiting for the complete story. And that's from the family to the general public. Everybody wants to know what happened. Also legislation. Hopefully legislation will most likely change in Oklahoma and they will correct some of these things. I had spoken about this case with my mom last night and my mom had made a suggestion that I hadn't thought of and she said that it should be required that when a sex offender is released that whatever area they're released to that the schools are notified so that the schools are aware and I actually think that's a very good call out because the only place where kids are at more than home is at school and I know that one of the things that we talked about was looking in, looking into people and specifically looking at the sex offender registries, which are available in every state. There's also a national sex offender registry as well that you can look at. 
Incredibly interesting is that McFadden didn't show up in either. So even if any of these families would have entered his name into the sex offender registry, whether that was for Oklahoma or nationally, they would not have seen his information. Nope. Alicia, what's your words of advice for kids your age that are out there? Bring a weapon. Awesome. <laughs> you know, honestly, that's that's actually a really good call out. Talk to your kids about how to handle situations. If you know that they're going to encounter a, a, a sexual predator at some point and they might encounter that person at the park in your neighborhood where maybe you're not with them and they're playing with their friends, tell them how to respond to those things. Tell them what to do. Tell them what actions they can take if you're there, if you're not there, who they should call, what they should do. I think that that's a very good call out. This case hits home to any parent, no matter who they are. I think it's important to know who your kids are with, who your kids are spending time with. And when your kids are spending time with other kids and other kids' families, then you need to make it your point to know who those families are and who those individuals are. And I think yesterday Raquel said she ran the sex registry for her neighborhood where she lives. And I think within a five mile radius, there's like something like 85 sex offenders. So it's probable that at some point your child is going to cross path with a sex offender. So you want to make sure that it's not somewhere where you're, where you're sending them to spend time. Also trust your red flags. When you see those red flags, trust them. Typically they're there for a reason. You're, if you're, if your spidey sense is tingling, it's tingling for a reason. So pay attention to it and take heed. At least entertain it. Don't just brush it off. And if you're involved in a crime where the investigators are not doing their jobs, uh, then it's important that you escalate that, that you bring in other agencies in to ensure that you get a good investigation because this crime is not over just because the perpetrator is dead. There's still a story in terms of what happened, what really happened, and what failures allowed this to happen. Those questions need answers. I find it ironic that they've pulled things down because it feels like a cover-up. It feels like they're covering up a defect in their system and they don't want to get called out for it because they don't want to be held accountable. And I think that it's good to call those things out because those are gaps that need to be closed. Those are defects that need to be resolved and those are problems that need to be fixed. Fixed. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.